This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, and thanks for letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Trade with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. We have some news from Brazil, some good news, opening up uh, more opportunities to sell U.S. pork into Brazil, but still concerns over what's uh, going on in the talks between U.S. and China and, of course, the uh, looming challenge of passing USMCA. We'll talk about those trade issues with Nick Giordano Vice President and Counsel for Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. We'll continue our coverage of Midwest flooding. Today we'll focus on the state of Iowa. Iowa Farm Bureau President Craig Hill will join us a little bit later for an update. And uh, uh, there's a report out uh, from an environmental group talking about uh, raising concerns about pesticides on products such as apples. We're going to talk with Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association, for the latest on that issue coming up in our program today. But we're going to start things off with a look at the news with Todd Neely, reporter for DTN. Todd, uh, usually we, we usually start off talking about something like trade or renewable fuels. Yeah. But, uh, story number one, uh, Midwest flooding. Uh, tell us uh, what you're seeing and hearing and about some of your reporting on it. Well, Mike, you know, it's something uh, the likes of which we've never seen here in Nebraska. Um you know, when you look at the history of the state, usually the, the major storm damages we have are related, you know, to hail and tornadoes in the spring and summer. And, um, you know, this is, uh, I believe this would be the second major flood that has something to do with Nebraska since 2011. You know, we had the Missouri flood over uh, and a lot of a lot of ag losses in that situation. But this is really unprecedented. Um, I think uh, the thing that's probably... Uh, most heartbreaking about this is that a lot of these rural areas here in Nebraska that have been hit by these floods, uh, you know, we're seeing over 200 miles of roads that need repaired or replaced. Uh, we've got now a total of, I believe, 16 bridges that are either damaged or gone. Um, and so, you know, it really, uh, it's really hard to watch. Uh, I think, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people rallying at this point. Um, you know, people are are coming together and really doing all they can to help people. Uh, you know, we've got over 2,000 homes that have been lost uh, in these floods. Um, but, you know, the way things are in Nebraska, we usually just put our head down and, and we grind it out and get the work done, and I think that's what we're seeing here now. And when we've been talking about this this week in our coverage, how long-term the impact this is going to be. I mean, when you're talking about loss of homes and you're talking about bridges and yeah. roads, these things don't get replaced overnight. No, they don't, you know. And we've seen, you know, here in Nebraska, we have a, uh, you know, we have a state law that requires uh, the, the state budget to be balanced every year, and it just so happens this past year in the legislature, uh, one of the disaster funds that, uh, that Nebraska can rely on was actually cut back because of, uh, you know, budget issues. And um, it really comes at a, at a really tough time. You know, we, we talk a lot uh, when we talk about agriculture, you know, the struggles that we're seeing in commodities, all the things, trade, everything. And, uh, you know, when something like this happens, uh, then you start to realize not only uh, is agriculture a big deal in this state? But it's a, it's a big economic deal because here we have 
Uh, we have farmers now in many regions that are, you know, hoping at some point that possibly maybe get a crop in yet, but that's probably the least of concerns. And so, um, yeah, it's, you know, we, we have a long way to go. I think we're probably looking at a full year here before we get things back to somewhat normal. Yeah, when you look at the loss of livestock, when you look at the loss of grain in storage and the loss of yeah. the potential income from a future crop this year that may not get planted or at best very delayed planted, uh, that adds to the long-term impact of this. Absolutely, you know, and, you know, we, we when you look at the cattle industry in particular, you know, these things aren't easily replaced when you lose your animals. I mean, these, these are... These are major investments for for producers, and so you don't just pick up and you know restock the herd right away and and get going back to full speed. Um, so yeah, I mean we you know here in Nebraska we're highly agriculture based that uh, economy. Uh, you know we've had it really good here overall as an economy for the past several years. You know unemployment unemployment rates low and and uh, but this is this really comes at a rough time because we were already. Uh, you know, lots of talk in Nebraska about reforming the property tax system and, uh, you know, giving property tax relief to farmers, all these things that we discuss. And then when you have an event that, of this magnitude, I mean, we're, we're going to be seen in north of a billion dollars in damage. Um, it's really tough to, to see where this thing goes at this point. We're talking with DTN reporter Todd Neely. Todd, what can you tell us about conditions uh, on the ground there in Nebraska today and some of the recovery efforts and assistance efforts that are underway. Well, you know, Mike, we've seen uh, just in fact just yesterday we had uh, a National Guard mission uh, involving some ranchers in Colfax County, which is uh, in the northeast part of the state here, uh, dropping some hay to to, to a herd of cattle uh, that, that are basically stranded. We see a lot of those things still going on. Um, you know, it's really uh, I think. You know, every time you hear about maybe a new hi- a highway opening back up, I think it's kind of a victory, or a small victory around here that people celebrate. Uh, you know, farmers, there are a lot of farmers who like to get out and see what their fields are looking like, if, if possible, at this point. Um, and so, you know, we're really kind of at a point now where it's moving on more toward a recovery. Um, you know, I think we're already seeing the state getting out and trying to do some repairs that it can do immediately. And then, obviously, we've got um, a total of 13 bridges that are out in the state. And so you can imagine uh, how that's going to affect agriculture in terms of, you know, getting around to the fields, delivering grain, all the things we need to do. And so, um, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a tough year. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I think um, if we can get the federal disaster declaration and uh, get some help here, I, I think building take place pretty quickly. Uh, there's a lot of people on board ready to go to help. You know, we all take something like a bridge or a road for granted until you don't have access yeah. to it anymore. Then you then you realize how important it is and how much it impacts your life. Absolutely, yeah, and that's definitely, uh, you know, we had a reporter yesterday trying to drive out into some of these areas and, uh, you know, just to see how people are doing, and it's, it's tough. Um, you know, we're still seeing roads closed, and, uh, you know, communities are still trying to figure out you know how to get around i mean we got some detours especially in the northern part of the state that are up to an hour to two hours um in length and so um it's going to take a little bit of adjusting but hopefully you know here in the in the short term some of these uh, some of these things that can be fixed immediately will be and maybe you'll get some sense of normalcy 
All right, Todd, thank you for the update and our thoughts and prayers with all of you there in Nebraska. And uh, we'll talk again next week, get another update from you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Todd Neely, DTN reporter with the latest on the situation there in Nebraska. Later in our program, we'll take a look at the state of Iowa, the flooding conditions in parts of Iowa. We'll be talking with Iowa Farm Bureau President Craig Hill a little bit later on. Up next, though, we're going to talk trade with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacorzemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in... Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected wheat acres that are left untreated. The fact is with... Preaxor fungicide... Nexacor fungicide... And Caramba fungicide... All together in one portfolio, portfolio you're, you're covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk trade. Joining us now is Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, some, uh, what, let's start with some good news. Uh, the announcement with uh, Brazil looks like that will open that market up to U.S. pork. How significant is that announcement? Um, well, look, we'll, um, we'll, we'll take it. It's, it's a positive thing. But um, I think as most producers understand, we don't have a lot of potential in Brazil. Brazil is a big pork-producing nation. Um, our position simply going back quite a few years has been we need reciprocity the brazilians can export pork to the u.s we should be able to export pork to brazil and and in fact there's um we gave this administration early on a list of about 50 nations where we either have uh, no market access or uh, only partial market access brazil was on that list so this is positive, but, you know, in terms of the headwinds that we face on trade and, you know, where the industry's been the past couple of years, but we appreciate it. We appreciate the Trump administration um, working hard uh, for us on this, the Bolsonaro administration in Brazil. Um, so it's, it's you know, on, on balance, it's, it's positive. We'll take it. Let's turn now to China. The president has made it clear all along that he likes to use tariffs. And now he's saying that even if a deal is struck with China, tariffs could stay in place uh, for some time after the deal is announced. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's going to be a real problem for us. We need to get out from under these punitive tariffs. We've got a, a – we're pretty darn efficient 
And I think most of the ag economists will tell you, usually, often, we're the low, United States is the low-cost producer in the world. And in fact, going back, you know, 10, 15 years, we often are the number one exporter in the world. We're really good, but we can't go into battle with one hand tied behind our back. We're on two Chinese retaliation lists, two, the metals list and the 301 uh, intellectual property forced technology transfer list. Now, you know, we understand there are important issues at stake here, but, um, you know, we've been, uh, our exports have been under siege because of these tariffs since April. So we got to get out from under these things, and there's opportunity in China because of African swine fever. And uh, that's, that can be very positive for our producers, but um, we know that if we don't get out from under these 50% punitive tariffs, most of that benefit will go to competitors, not to the United States. Now, there's obviously, if you take a significant chunk of Chinese production off the market because of ASF, it's going to have upward pressure on global, on, on global um, hog and pork prices, right? So that's a good thing for our guys. But if we can't ship there, it's going to be indirect benefits backfilling in other uh, parts of the, the world. So not the same impact, not the same price impact for us if we get direct access. So, yeah, you can probably tell I'm getting a little agitated here, Mike. This has been going on for a long time. We get it, and our guys have been patient. They realize there are real big issues at stake here between the U.S. and China, but it's really tough when you're you're the innocent bystander that's getting whacked while this is going on. Nick, the question I keep coming back to, whenever we do get a trade deal, whenever, if and when that happens, will we ever make up for what we've lost in the meantime? Look, China is the yeah, look it's it's prob- the, the number one opportunity long term in the world so I, I, I you know I, I think in 2017 we did about a, you know over a billion dollars but when you look at all imports from all sources US and other suppliers I don't even think that was 10 percent of total Chinese demand so look long term um, we got to get back into the, the China market. We're, we're going to sell a lot of pork. If that happens, we'll sell a lot of pork there long term. You know, short term, this is a huge problem. Now, you know, China, though, isn't our, our only problem. We actually have two bigger problems right now, which are the Mexican metal tariffs. We've got a 20% punitive tariff on Mexico, which is really our number one hair on fire issue. And uh, we're losing sales already in Japan because Japan is in the CPTPP. So the Canadians and the Mexicans and other competitors have favorable market access that we do not have. And then the European Union um, sealed the deal that's been implemented with Japan. So we're losing sales in, uh, in, in, in Japan. It's a huge problem for us. We can't get the U.S. and Japan to move fast enough in their trade negotiations. I mean, this is a big deal for the pork industry. And I know talking to my colleagues in the beef industry and other sectors of agriculture, they're eager to get this moving because, you know, China's in the news right now. But I'll tell you, we're getting killed in Mexico. It's a huge problem. we got to get those metal tariffs off. 
and we're we're losing sales already in Japan. We're at a disadvantage. It's we got some real challenges here. We're talking with Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. On Japan, uh, we're, we're hearing that the administration's uh, eager to get started on talks with Japan and get something worked out on a trade deal. What are you hearing? Yeah, we're hearing that. I mean, Ambassador Lighthizer, Ambassador Dowd have, have told us that directly. I mean, we talked to them uh, and, and to you know, the the. Now, Undersecretary McKinney and USDA, USDR all the time. So they're committed. Um, it's just, you know, unfortunate that we had to shut down. So that, you know, pushed things out in time. And, um, we, you know, as I said, we can't get the negotiation started and finished fast enough because we're already losing sales in Japan. This is really tough. Japan has, year in and year out, been our top value market. I mean, it's really important to the pork industry, and we're we're really concerned. So appreciate that the administration is committed to moving quickly, and and you know the Japanese have said that they are. That's that's great, but we gotta you know as an industry we're gonna keep we're gonna you know be pestering um, these governments to move quickly because we got a lot of trade at stake here in in Japan. Nick, quick, and finally on USMCA, can that get through Congress without these tariffs being lifted? I don't know. I mean, members of Congress want the tariffs gone. So, you know, that's, that's important, irrespective of the pain being inflicted on pork producers because of the 20% punitive tariff that Mexico's put in place in response to the U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs. I mean, you know, that's a congressional matter. So I, yeah, I from from my perspective, and look, we're we are lobbying on USMCA. I mean, we we are key voting that, which means it's a signal to members of Congress that we're disproportionately going to be looking at this vote. Um, so we're not making the perfect the enemy of the good in terms of well, you know, we're not going to withhold we're going to withhold our support on USMCA until we get the metal tariffs. No, because that twenty percent punitive tariff we're facing. If North American free trade were to go away, so if Congress wasn't, you know, doesn't move on USMCA, and the president resurrects his threat to uh, terminate the NAFTA, we have no free trade. That 20% tariff becomes that's what's called Mexico's MFN rate. That that's the rate that we would face all the time, and we'll lose that. We will totally lose that market over time. So we're all in on USMCA. Um, the metal tariffs obviously are a big issue, but I, I think my, my great hope is that, that the metal tariff issue gets resolved, and I think that um, we can get USMCA through the Congress. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's possible that before the August recess, the agreement's done. The president's going to be talking shortly to um, members of, uh, Republican members of Congress. He's personally engaged. Ambassador Lighthizer's been meeting with everybody, met with the Democratic caucus. They're, they're working hard. And, I, look, it's not going to be easy, but I think it can be done. It's a crossroads year on these very important issues, that's for sure. Nick, thank you for the update. Thank you for having me.
Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Some huge trade issues that have been going on for some time now. Hopefully will be resolved this year, but uh, we continue to wait. Meanwhile, the Midwest flooding issue continues to be a, a major issue, major concern for so many. We've talked a lot about Nebraska. We're going to look at Iowa next as we'll talk with the president of the Iowa Farm Bureau. Craig Hill joins us next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Our coverage of Midwest flooding here in 2019 continues as we look now at the state of Iowa. Joining us is the president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, Craig Hill. Craig, thank you for joining us. Uh, what's the latest update you can give us? Well, good morning. Um, well, I will tell you that uh, we do have a crisis here in Iowa. Uh, and I would place some emphasis on that this will be a crisis for some time. Uh, currently, uh, we have 43 of 99 Iowa counties that have been declared disaster counties. Uh, a few days ago, um, we had at least 81 of our 91, 99 counties that were under a flood warning or flood advisory. Uh, but numerous levees have been broken, uh, damaged along the Missouri River. We've got bridges out um, and in disrepair across the state. Uh, yet to be determined on a lot of those bridges and roads, uh, but we do have closed roads, deteriorated roads. Uh, so uh, several small towns uh, along the, the Missouri are underwater. Uh, we've had uh, some warning in some areas uh, that farmers uh, were very uh, able to get their, their livestock moved. In some cases, not so much, but uh, in terms of livestock loss, I would say that uh, it's not been extreme, and that's a, a, a good thing, uh, a valued effort of farmers uh, to uh, make sure that uh, livestock life wasn't lost. But communities have come together. Uh, we've got folks arm-in-arm arm that uh, are helping one another. Uh, very collaborative response, I would say, uh, in most all communities. Uh, but as I said at the opening, uh, I put some emphasis on this will be a continuing crisis um, this is March. Uh, the most memorable flood in Iowa was 1993, and uh, that came along in the, the first uh, week of July uh, at the conclusion of our spring rains. Uh, we still have frost in our soil. Uh, we still have saturated soils, uh, snow melt in the Dakotas and Minnesotas yet to occur. Um, we're just entering a time for spring rains. Uh, our dams uh, are full, Sailorville, Red Rock, a number of dams across Iowa are full. So our concerns here in Iowa uh, could persist for a very long time, and uh, April is normally a time when we, we focus on planting and, and getting some things done, um, and it's going to make uh, that very, very difficult. 
Craig, uh, we've talked a lot in our coverage this week about damage to roads and bridges, the infrastructure. Uh, when we think of a lot of farmland, thousands of acres of farmland and rural communities that rely on that levee system, and when those levees go, uh, not only do you have the damage, but then you've got to try to recover from that and rebuild those levees. That takes a while, too. A very long time. So the levees will need to dry, and uh, that's going to take uh, a considerable amount of time. And, uh, you know, even the saturated soil below those levees has to be uh, some workable condition. So it could be summer before those uh, levees can be replaced or repaired. Um, you know, agriculture is always in motion. Uh, it's constantly in motion, and this has been a big interruption in progress. Delivery of grain, feed, uh, the movement of livestock, the pastures, uh, uh, machine preparation for spring planting, the anxiety, uh, the stress uh, on the producers. Uh, this has been a big interruption and I think will continue to be. We're talking with the president of the Iowa Farm Bureau, Craig Hill. Craig, you mentioned the stress, and I want to talk about that, because this is a time of year, usually farmers are hopeful, optimistic, going to go to the fields, plant, you hope for uh, you know, a good crop and hope for good prices. Uh, that's you know the optimism of uh, being a farmer. But when you look out at your fields and they're underwater, it's hard to imagine, uh, even think about planting for a long time. Yeah, and underwater, but what is under the water? Uh, there could be lots of debris, uh, lots of cleanup. Uh, the bins uh, along the river that were uh, inundated with water have uh, soaked a lot of that water in and, and then busted uh, because of the pressure. So there's uh, millions of uh, bushels of grain that are lost or have to be cleaned up, uh, hay uh, lost, uh, just a whole lot of uh, things to get resolved in a very short window of time, uh, it's going to be very difficult. So have you talked to federal officials, uh, state officials? Tell us about the assessment, uh, the process that's going on, and the, perhaps the availability of, of help in the, uh, moving down the line on this. You know, I really can't speak to that at this, this juncture. I do know that uh, papers are being prepared to uh, have Iowa declared a disaster area, uh, so that's yet to come. But um, yeah, I would say that all government agencies have been very collaborative, uh, along with individuals and, and folks in, in Iowa. We've all worked together very well. One of the first steps, most likely, will be for a producer, a, a homeowner, to meet with their insurance agent and actually uh, determine what levels of coverage they have, what will be covered and will not be. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, you got to uh, get get things ready and organize your seed, uh, your, your machinery, everything ready to go. Um, and uh, with this ambiguity about, you know, what's, what's ready and what's not and uh, where you are financially uh, is going to create a great deal of hardship. Now, this becomes a double whammy based on what happened last fall. And because what did not get done in many cases last fall, left many really counting on a, a good early spring this year, which obviously is not happening. That's correct. And, and there is a, a, a issue around uh, nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, it was a very small percentage that was applied last fall. I've heard uh, maybe 30% of what's normal. Uh, so the field preparation and getting those nutrients uh, in the soil where they belong before this crop's planted is going to be very difficult. 
not only in getting it applied, but getting it moved to transportation. Uh, you know, it's going to put uh, a real stringency on our time. Uh, so whether there'll be a shift in, in our acreage going to soybeans rather than corn, I can't predict that, but uh, it's going to make it very, very difficult. Yeah, a lot of those questions, A, when can they get out there? Uh, so that'll where you'll be on the calendar. So you're talking about either uh, late planting or a switch to from corn to beans, or in some cases maybe not be able to plant at all. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we still have spring rains ahead of us, and a lot of the snow melt, um, you know, on the watershed above, uh, both in the Dakotas and Minnesota. And so the Mississippi is an untold story. We haven't begun to really talk about what's happening on the Mississippi, and that will be uh, another uh, big, big concern for the eastern part of the state. Yeah, we're just starting to get into some of those issues as we go along with that snow melt, as you mentioned. Uh, what are the conditions uh, there today uh, and your forecast, uh, Craig? Uh, are you going to get some help, maybe with some drying conditions this week? Well, it's a mixed blessing. Uh, warmer weather uh, in Iowa, central Iowa, uh, predicted for the weekend and, and next week, a few nights below freezing. But you hope that uh, those northern states uh, stay below freezing or, or spend most of their time below freezing so you don't have the snow melt um, and, you, and you take some time in getting that snow melted down. Uh, but, you know, the upland uh, uh, could dry out pretty fast, uh, get some wind, warmer weather. We are predicted for rain over the weekend. Uh, but, you know, there's a glimmer of hope uh, that in some areas of the state, you know, a guy will be able to get out there and get some things done in a few weeks. But, um it's all going to be contingent upon the weather and, and uh, layers and layers of unpredictability around that. Yeah, the timing of all this, the timing of the warm-up and the thaw and all this is really going to be critical in how this plays out. Craig, uh, are there any uh, assistance efforts, uh, any funds set up there in Iowa for people can contribute to, whether money or, or uh, whether it be hay or material, or whatever it might be, has that started yet? been started. I can't speak to those uh, definitively, but there are uh, efforts underway, and uh, I know that'll be ongoing. But what I would say is just how folks have rallied around this, uh, the individual efforts, the neighbors, uh, the communities, uh, everybody's come together and, and worked hard to help one another, uh, and that means a lot uh, morally and in order to overcome some of this hardship. So um, that's the first step, and, and we're seeing it happening across Iowa. Yeah, we see that in times like this, uh, how people rally together, and it, it's uh, one of the great strengths of character of people in the Midwest. We see it over and over, how they support one another. That's right. It, it's it's incredible to see, and it is a characteristic of the Midwest. Well, Craig, thank you for the update, and I know that uh, that assessment is going to be ongoing as, as folks can get out there and really take a look at what's going on, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you as more information comes in and keep people updated. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. All right. Craig Hill, president of the Iowa Farm Bureau. So uh, the situation, it, it's bad now, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay that way for some time, uh, even as the waters recede. Then you, then you get a look at all the damage, and then you get into the repairs, and more water to come, as we were talking about 
who knows about spring rains yet, but also, of course, the thawing and the melting of that snow further up north. We'll be talking with folks from other states impacted by the flooding here in 2019 in the days ahead. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk with the president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. They're saying that the environmental working group's so-called dirty dozen list is inaccurate and harmful to Americans. The report uh, tells consumers uh, that uh, they should avoid fruits and vegetables because of use of pesticides and things like that, making it harmful for them to eat. Jim Baer with the U.S. Apple Association wants to set the record straight. He'll be with us to do that next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The U.S. Apple Association is calling the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen list inaccurate and harmful to Americans. Here to explain is Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Uh, Tell us about your concerns about this list released by the Environmental Working Group talking about basically warning or trying to scare consumers about fruits and vegetables and pesticide residues. Yeah, Mike, you know, your listeners in production agriculture know two things for sure. One is that ag chemicals are expensive, and so they're not going to apply an ounce more than is necessary to do the job. And number two, their farm kids eat the same food as the city kids, and so growers understand the importance of safe food. And safe food is what we have because the EPA sets strict tolerances for pesticide residues on food. In fact, to approach the EPA tolerances for pesticide residues on apples, a child would have to eat 340 apples every day just to bump up against the EPA tolerances. And for a woman, it's 850 apples a day. And for a man, 1,190 apples in a day just to bump up against the EPA tolerances for pesticide residues. So we think it's a, an extreme activist agenda, and, and uh, we think they're just – uh, at the Environmental Working Group, it's just another extreme activist group taking a cheap shot at agriculture. Yeah, they come out with this list. What's their basis? So what what are their facts that they try to claim uh, behind it, or are there any? Well, they take advantage of the fact that most people don't understand the 
chemistry and, and the statistics behind this. So USDA does an annual market basket survey where they test thousands of different food products for pesticide residues. And so uh, the Environmental Working Group reports the, the mere presence of a pesticide residue at any level, say one part per billion, uh, which is equivalent to three seconds in, uh, in 100 years, by the way. Uh, so they just report the fact that there are pesticide residues, but they don't tell the people what those residue levels are or whether there are any health consequence. And that's, uh, we think that's taking advantage of people. We think it's, we know that it's inaccurate. We know that it's misleading. And they're just out to scare people and use that fear to raise money for their activist agenda. While you are urging consumers to follow the advice of groups like the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, American Diabetes Association, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and others saying that we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. Uh, Heart disease and cancer are two of the most frequent causes of death in the U.S., and all those groups that you mentioned, Mike, they're all telling us to eat more fruits and vegetables, not less, and they tell us that there's a far greater health risk from not eating fruits and vegetables than there would be any risk from uh, the, the theoretical risk of trace amounts of pesticide residues in their food. You know, our moms were always right, Mike, and she was certainly right when she told us to eat our fruits and vegetables. We're talking with Jim Baer, president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, we've talked before, uh, your industry, the Apple industry, you're very uh, concerned about what's going on in these trade talks and issues that are going on right now because you're being certainly ad- adversely impacted by these uh, trade wars. We are, Mike, and we see uh, a tremendous need to get the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement uh, ratified by Congress as quickly as possible. Uh, NAFTA was the best trade deal in history for agriculture, and it certainly was for apples. We quadrupled our exports to Mexico because of NAFTA. We doubled our exports to Canada because of NAFTA. And now because of the the lack of ratification so far, uh, that's all been uh, put at risk. And then the the steel and aluminum tariffs have added to that. We've got a 20% tariff going into Mexico. We've got a 50% tariff going to India, soon to become 75%. And we've got a 50% tariff going to China, which is a brand new market for us. So we're uh, in lockstep with our brethren and other segments of production agriculture, whether it's soybeans or pork or wheat or any of the other uh, commodity groups, and that we need these trade disputes to get settled as quickly as possible because other countries are are already in those markets where we're uh, leaving a vacuum. And once you've lost a market, it's hard to get them back. So we're we're calling on the administration and Congress to uh, put an end to these um, harmful trade disputes as quickly as possible so we can get back to doing what production agriculture does best, and that's supply a tremendous quality food supply around the world. And probably a lot of people here in the United States don't realize how important exports are to U.S. apple growers. Yeah, it's always... Uh, occurs to me that it's a miracle of modern agriculture that you can ship an apple from the United States halfway around the world to, say, our number two market, India. And when it gets there, not only is it still good to eat, but it's affordable. So that, to me, is just a, is just a miracle. And we're similar to other 
production agriculture uh, in that we export a third of our crop in a normal year, and uh, in that for us equals about a billion dollars, a positive contribution to the U.S. balance of trade. So right now our exports are down uh, about 30%, so that's over $300 million uh, in our industry alone. So we're anxious to get these trade disputes settled as quickly as possible. And quickly, Jim, what about the labor issue? Do you have the workers you need for your industry? We do not, and that's true of not just the seasonal crops like fruits and vegetables and the the harvesting that we need there, but it's also true of year-round ag industries like dairies and confinement swine and and other similar uh, industries. So we know that we probably need about 2 million seasonal workers, um, and that's becoming harder and harder to do, as, as people in your listening audience know, unemployment rates are at near record low levels or at record low levels in most areas of agriculture. And finding people who want to do that work, which, let's be honest, we all know it's hard work. And right. so uh, finding the workers we need is a constant challenge. Jim, as always, thank you for being with us. You bet, Mike. Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.